and welcome to the Armchair Genealogy Podcast, where we aim to demystify technology and make it useful in family tree research, whilst making it fun and easy to do, featuring interviews and alternative tips. Please remember to subscribe and share the podcast. So, on with the episode. At the Family History Show, back in autumn 2023, I watched with great interest Donna Rutherford talk and she gave a great tips and a very helpful advice on using DNA and general research tips when using social media. I was so impressed. I thought it just made sense to have her as a guest on Armchair Genealogy to run through some of the main tips that she mentioned. I'll try and stick to my questions in front of me, but according to how the conversation unfolds, I may sort of deviate slightly because I know Donna has a lot of information in her head and sometimes it's great to try and grab some extra bits. So to start us off, Donna, how did you get into genealogy? I started uh, looking at genealogy and, and looking at my family history way back when I was a teenager, so many years ago now, and used to talk a lot to some of my aunts, great aunts and, and uncles who would tell me all about the family history. So I got involved with genealogy really early on. And then um, in New Zealand, I used to do a lot of work in the weekends, looking for records back in the day before the internet. And then slowly the internet came along and I continued with my love of genealogy and of course my I love of technology. And so I started doing online family trees, which I loved, and then rolled forward to 2015 and Ancestry DNA or Ancestry announced their DNA tests. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. Why don't I give this a go? Something I don't know anything about. I literally knew nothing about the science of it and did an Ancestry DNA test and was absolutely fascinated. I didn't have very many matches back in 2015. I was one of the early adopters of the DNA tests, but it was just absolutely fascinating. And I threw myself into learning all about genetic genealogy and uh, just been working on and, and trying to learn all the time. Every day is a school day. And uh, every day, you know, there's new things coming along to learn about and t- new tools and so on. So I love it. And I love then um, imparting that knowledge to other people in presentations and uh, blog posts and a Facebook group as well. Okay, then. So, right, I've sent for my results. I've got them back. What, what do I do now? It's always the question. I think some people think they're going to get a result where it just uh, gives them a whole family tree and they can just tick it off and say, yep, that looks right and and, uh, good to go. Of course, that's not what happens. They get get an ethnicity estimate, which they look at and then wonder why they've got region percentages for regions of the world they know they've got no ancestors in from their research and then they just see a load of matches which are just names to them and probably not even anyone they recognize so it can be very confusing to start with it is nice to have a look at the ethnicity estimate um that can actually uh, pose some uh, interesting issues if you do see you're from a region of the world you really weren't expecting. Um, But otherwise, the best place is to then start moving on and looking at your your DNA match list. Those are your DNA cousins, people you share DNA with. And that's when it takes a bit of learning. And it is quite um, an uphill learning path and it can take some time. But learning how to use those DNA matches to actually then confirm whether your known tree that you've already built um, is as expected or whether you might have some interesting mysteries to solve. 
The, the other big question that everyone asks is, I've tested on another company. I'm uploading my DNA to another company. Why are the results different? They're different because when they do the ethnicity estimates, they're measuring you against their own reference panel. And a reference panel is a group of living people, modern people. They have, they're not comparing you to ancient remains or anything like that. They are con comparing you to other people. It's not everyone else in the database who's tested. It's a very select group of people. Those reference panels now, some of the companies are growing to, you know, thousands upon thousands of people in this reference panel. Those people are selected because they have known ancestry in specific regions of the world. And uh, they've got all the documents documentation that backs that up and then they compare your DNA to that uh, to those people. The companies, um, so every company has a completely different set of reference people that they use. And then along with that, they have different computer algorithms to try and work out what your ethnicity is by after these comparisons with those reference people. So basically you, you should take your DNA and definitely upload it to as many other um, databases that you can possibly get your hands on. Absolutely. And not just to have a look at the ethnicity estimate differences, but also you'll get a different pool of DNA matches. So, for example, I might have uh, 400 fourth cousins and closer ancestry. If I upload my file from there to my heritage or family tree DNA um, and some of the other companies, then I'm all get, um, I will get some people that have also tested at Ancestry, but I'll get a load of people that have only tested at, for example, MyHeritage. So now I'm growing my pool of DNA cousins to do my genealogy research. The next one is, what does my match list mean? How, how do I use this information when it starts telling you, oh, we've got a match list? What, what, <laughs> what's it actually saying? And it can be confusing to people because they look at their matches and go, I don't recognise that name. How can this person be um, connected to me? Well, everyone in your match list is your DNA cousin. It means they share DNA with you. And you you can only get your DNA from your parents. You get 50% of your biological father and 50% of your biological mother's DNA uh, for the type of DNA tests we're doing, the autosomal DNA. And their DNA um, is made up of all their ancestors before them as well. And every generation, it's that 50% is handed down to a child. So you've got DNA from all your ancestors going back. With the type of DNA we're working with, autosomal DNA, we're looking probably about five to six generations back is when we can really research using this type of DNA. So your all your um, great, 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 great grandparents, you've got parts of their DNA. And so do loads of other people because those four times great-grandparents have had children who have had children who have had children who have had children, and those are people who's, who are also DNA testing. So you won't know all those people, which is why your match list is usually made up of a whole lot of people you've never heard of. What you're looking for on your DNA match list, all the companies sort it by size. So DNA matches um, are measured by centimorgans, it's a, a scientific term, and you, nobody needs to understand the complex calculation behind the centimorgan. It's always written with a little c and a capital M, but you're looking for the centimorgan amount on your match. The more centimorgans you share with someone, the closer they are to you in relationship. So you'll share around about 
3,500 centimorgans with a parent and around about 1,500 centimorgans, maybe about 1,700 centimorgans with an aunt or an uncle or a niece and a nephew. Now, the companies can't tell you who this person is or what their relationship is with you. They can just tell you how much DNA you share with them. And as you saw that in that example, around 1,700 centimorgans could be an aunt, uncle or a niece, nephew. You can't tell, the sites can't tell you which way round that is. You need to work that out by doing genealogy. And I always say to people, genetic genealogy is really all about the genealogy and not about the genetics, because the only way you can work out someone's actual relationship to you is to compare family trees. And when you compare family trees, you can then place that match into your family tree based on the common ancestor you have with them. So you're always looking for your match's common ancestor with, with you and with them. And you know how far to go back based on how many centimorgans you share. So once you get down to about 35, 40 centimorgans, you could be sharing that with a four times uh, somebody who shares a four times great grandparent with you, for example. So it could be a lot of tree building required to get you back to your common ancestor with the match. What's on centimorgans when it says shared centimorgans? What's the lowest common ancestor that I should go chasing for? What what number should I go? Anything below that, it's going to be really hard. So I usually set myself a limit around about 30 centimorgans. And anyone listening to this, I can hear them already say, but oh, I've got confirmed 20 centimorgan matches. And that is quite possible. But at the 30 centimorgan uh, level is where science tells us we're likely to have a common ancestor with that match back about five to six generations most of the time. Once we start getting under 30 centimorgans, that common ancestor could be 10 generations back, 20 generations back, and we're never going to be able to find them by doing all the research because there is no availability of records back that far to do that research. So we're kind of stuck. We know we share DNA with someone at maybe 25 centimorgans, but we don't know whether that common ancestor could be 10 generations ago. Now, it could be somebody who is a fourth cousin or a fifth cousin, and they have a nicely documented tree. You have a really good documented tree, and you're able to clearly see your connection to get to where your common ancestor is. So that's great. But normally with those matches under 30 centimorgans, unless I can see a clear connection on the genealogy, I don't go chasing them at all because, well, I did once and I spent an entire weekend building a beautiful tree for a family from the Isle of Wight, only to find there just wasn't enough records to connect this huge distant tree to the closer match because they were the matches were just too small. And there was obviously some generations there where the paperwork just wasn't available. So it can waste your precious research time doing that. Once we get down to about 10 centimorgans and we're really in the realm of we, we might find a genealogical link, but we can't guarantee that the DNA came by that route because someone we share only 10 centimorgans with, it could in fact be a false positive. And unfortunately that can happen. We just coincidentally, the, the, um, the matching algorithm, um, the DNA 
matches, but it doesn't match because you have a common ancestor. So anything under 10 centimorgans, we're looking at what we call small segments or small matches. And those matches, even if you find a genealogical connection, you cannot be sure that um, the DNA came to you via that route of the genealogical connection you found. You get the thing we found somebody connected. Either A, you can find they've got no tree at all, and you think, well, that was a waste of time. And the other one is it's completely private and they're not responding. You send them messages and they never respond. How can you work with a match when when you know it's really high, but you're going, but I can't make the connection here? These are my favourite matches because that means I can put my deer stalker on and go sleuthing to figure out who that matches. And I love that detective work. It's really surprising how many hints and clues are on that person's profile. In some of my talks, I I spend a bit of time talking about the tips and tricks of sleuthing a match that doesn't have a tree or is not replying to messages or has a private tree. The ones that really have nothing, sometimes when you click through to their actual profile on the site, you might find that they've registered a location or an age that might give you some details. Um, But also Facebook is and any social media is fantastic for trying to sleuth out a match. If they have a very common name, it is it is often a lot more difficult. But if they've got a, a name that you can recognize as probably not being that common, you could just tap that into Facebook and and look through. Sometimes their Facebook profile has the same picture they use on the site as their profile picture uh, for their DNA kit. So there's lots of ways to do that. And it takes some time to get used to using those sleuthing techniques rather than just saying that's a lovely match, but they're not communicating with me, I'll, I'll bypass it. There's a bit of a trick for looking into private trees if you're on Ancestry. At Ancestry DNA, there's some lovely search features at the top of the match list. And if you type a surname in, for example, if I type Rutherford in, what will come back to me is a list of all the people in my match list that have Rutherford in their tree, in their connected DNA tree, whether it's private or public. And I will see that match come back with their private tree under Rutherford. And I now know that in that private tree, they have the Rutherford surname. It doesn't mean to say I'm connected to them by by the Rutherford surname, but I now know that Rutherford is in that private tree. So that's a really nice tip when you've got matches that have private trees. So you've uploaded to Genmatch and then what does it all mean? GetMatch is a very confusing um, site for people who um, go to it directly after just working with their first DNA test. And it used to be that people would immediately say, oh, you've done your DNA test, quick, get it into GetMatch. Um, Those days are starting to go. Uh, One of the reasons is GetMatch has had some security problems, which um, you can read about on on the internet and some of the Facebook groups. But uh, GEDmatch uh, is a public DNA database. So when you're uploading uh, to this database, it was just started by a couple of guys actually, uh, wanted somewhere to to put these DNA kits that that since changed. Um, When you go in there, you have to learn how to use all the different reports. It doesn't have a nice user interface like some of the other companies do. And in most instances now, genetic genealogists are saying, if you've tested at Ancestry, then the next place to upload is probably MyHeritage because it has a very nice user interface. It has 
a growing pool of people. It is bigger than it has a bigger pool than Jedmatch, and it also uses the color. If you're using the colored dot feature, Ancestry, my heritage have that as well. They also have some really good built-in hints. Their theory of uh, family relativity and so on. So it's it's much like using. Um, the Ancestry interface if you started with Ancestry. So GEDmatch is now not really the next go-to upload site. Uh, it is used by law enforcement. You cannot opt out of being matched for human remains um, testing with law enforcement, and but you can opt out of the murder cases and the ongoing um, law, law enforcement activity around uh, murder cases and cold cases. That's all being done in a in the USA, but of course, GEDmatch is one big database, like they all are. They're worldwide databases. You can't siphon off part of a database just to be for one, one country. Email the podcast by contacting us, info at armchairgenealogy.com. Returning back to the chat with Donna Rutherford here on Armchair Genealogy, I asked her about XDNA and what is it? XDNA um, comes on chromosome 23. So when we talk about autosomal DNA that I mentioned before that we use for these types of direct-to-consumer DNA tests, we don't include the DNA on what we call the sex chromosome. So autosomal DNA is on chromosome 1 to 22, but we all have 46 chromosomes, 23 um, pairs. So every it, the, it's pairs because one, one of the pair comes from your mother and one, one comes from your father. But when we get to chromosome 23, we call those the sex chromosomes because if you're a um, born female, you will have two X chromosomes. You get XDNA from your mother and XDNA from your father. Your father actually only has one X chromosome. His other chromosome is, is a Y chromosome. So chromosome 23 for a, a man is a Y and an X. So the man actually determines the sex of the child. The child either has a Y chromosome, meaning they're born male, or an X chromosome from the father, which means they're born female. So XDNA can be quite uh, useful to, because it has an inheritance pattern. For example, two males who match, who have some X chromosome matching, it can't have come from their fathers because their fathers only gave them a Y chromosome. It must have come from their maternal side. It's really useful for um, people who uh, have unknown parentage and are looking to kind of prove that there uh, a particular man is their biological father. If there's two half siblings that are female and they look at their X DNA, they know they don't uh, match through their uh, mother, but their X DNA will be the same because they've got it from the same father because the father only has one X DNA to pass on. So they will share a full X chromosome if they share a father. I'll give you a scenario. If if I'm working with my match, and we and we and I found somebody, and and we both have, have solid trees, and we find there's a common ancestor, and but we can't find the common surname. What 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 can you do there? It could be that uh, it could be several things. It could be 
your you you or your match could have a wrong tree. You've just gone wrong with the paper trail. You've found the wrong family. If you're like me, you've got Smiths in your tree. I have an Elizabeth Smith born in Lincolnshire in the middle of the 1800s. I cannot tell you how many of those Elizabeth Smiths there are. So it could have been quite easy to go wrong and pick the wrong Elizabeth Smith and follow the wrong paper trail. So if your match has followed a correct paper trail, then you're not going to be able to see your connection if it's back on, say, that Smith line, for example. It could be the other way around. It could be you've got the right paper trail, but your match has followed a wrong paper trail. So their tree doesn't show that common ancestor because they've gone off with the wrong family somewhere along the line in their, in their research. It could be that you've both done fantastic trees and, and they are correct for the paper trail, but unfortunately, one of you have what we call an MPE or a non-parental event, uh, not parent expected, sometimes it's called. And um, more often these days, it's called misattributed parentage. What this means is that a father somewhere in your tree, usually it's the father, somewhere in the tree, the biological father is not the man who's on the birth certificate. I actually have this in my own tree where I had a, a cluster of uh, mysterious matches um, who I found out live next their family, live next door to my family in Yorkshire. And as it turns out, it appears the man next door was actually the father of my great great grandfather and not, not the man named on his birth certificate. So that happens um, throughout the ages really that um, unfortunately somebody is going to find that in their tree that the man named on the birth certificate is is not the biological father of the child and so when you find that in a tree you can find it by doing a DNA test because you'll have a cluster of matches that all go back to a family you've never you've never heard of you don't know about and you have no matches to a particular branch in your tree. And then you need to do some sleuthing, some detective work to figure out how, you know, how the other family slots into your tree. And in my case, when I was sleuthing, looking at all the records, I, I noticed an address that was the same and realized it was the address of the people next door. And so I could see that this uh, unknown uh, group of people that, I could see they were close matches to me, but we just couldn't find a connection in our trees. And then I found that their family lived next door to mine and they had more and more matches that all went back to the next door neighbours. And I had no matches back to the man named on the birth certificate. So that can be um, one of the problems when you've got a match and you're comparing trees and you, you cannot find a, a link. That, that will happen as you get smaller matches. You know, when I was talking about going down to 20, 25 centimorgans, and it just could be your common ancestor is too far back. You're not going to be able to find it. But if you've got a close match kind of above that 30 centimorgan range, you would expect to, to find a connection. Uh, but there could also be an error in a tree or an MPE. One of your great tips was talking about a dirty tree. If someone's just starting out, why is it a good idea to set up a dirty tree? We usually call these quick and dirty trees or research trees. And we kind of use that term quick and dirty, like we might use in the corporate world, or you might use at home yourself. If you're trying to spec something out a budget or something like that, you might just write on the back of an envelope and a quick and dirty calculation. And that same term is being used for these types of trees that we create, which we then name as quick and dirty trees. Doing a quick and dirty tree is a great way of doing research 
the quick and dirty tree has one thing that's really important. It cannot be found by anybody else. So we need to make sure it's not indexed in any of the databases that the companies have. And the reason we want to do that is because it is so quick and dirty, we could have errors. We could, we could be just testing things out. We don't want anyone else to just copy it. We know in the genealogy world, there's a lot of really bad online trees. We don't want to be um, somebody adding into that pool of really bad trees out there. So we keep all this research private. And now if we're doing a quick and dirty tree ancestry, there's a great way to do it to keep it private. Not only can we make the tree private, but we can also make that tree unsearchable. And it's a different, there's two little toggles when you create a tree that's to make it public or private. But if you make it private, there's another switch that says, do you want to make it searchable? And there you have to switch it off and say, I do not want to make it searchable. At that point, it won't enter the um, ancestry database of trees and no one will even know that you've created it. So, you know, you've got match lists where you've got private trees and I gave you that little tip of how to find if a private tree has a certain name in it by searching. Um, your quick and dirty tree, even if you, you link your DNA to it, is never going to show on a match list. There is absolutely no reason to link your DNA to a quick and dirty um, tree anyway because you're keeping it out of any places that where it can, um, it can be compared to any other DNA match. But it will attract hints. So if you're using an ancestry, you'll get potential ancestor hints. So you can build a tree really, really quickly. This is really useful. If you've got a DNA match, you don't know where they fit with you. And they've got a partial tree. It's only got about three people in it. But in your quick and dirty tree, you can go and add that person in. And then you can put in the information they've got and then start building it up yourself. We are genealogists. We know how to do that research. Um, so we can do that research and then create these trees ourselves. And that will lead us to the common ancestor of our match. And that, will, that is a lot easier than trying to sometimes than even trying to message them if they don't want to, don't want to message with you or just bypass them because their tree only has three people in it. If you build it out further, you might come to the common ancestor. So you do all that tree building in your private and unsearchable quick and dirty research tree. No one can see what you're doing. And sometimes I put um, screenshots. If I've been doing some sleuthing on social media, I might put some screenshots into that quick and dirty tree as well, but they never find their way to my public tree. And once I've established how I connect with a match, I just take that line where I'm connected. I'm happy that they share the right sentinel organs for the relationship I've found. And I will go and put that whole connection through in my public tree. But my quick and dirty tree will never be seen by anybody. So uh, we just use it to do the research to keep it out of um, keep it out of that whole um, database of trees that do include some quite bad wrong trees. We just do it where no one can see it. Some people might just do it on a piece of paper, do a quick and dirty tree on a piece of paper. But that's why we use a quick and dirty tree to do all that research where it can't be found. And then when we establish who somebody is, we can put that into our proper tree that is properly sourced. Well, Donna Rutherford, once again, you've proven to me that you have a phenomenal database <laughs> in your head of bits of information. <laughs> if people want to find out more about what you do and what you can help with and what you can advise with and, and links and all that sort of stuff, is there a, a place they can go to? Um, they can find me on the web at DonnaRutherford.com. 
But if they're on Facebook, they can find my Facebook group where people come in with exactly these types of questions, Mel. They come in, they're asking these sorts of things every day. They get replies from all the other people in the group who are also very knowledgeable and have been researching for a long time. We help a lot of newbies. We help a lot of people with advanced things. And my DNA group is set up for um, the UK because we have different ways of we have a different types of matches than perhaps if we're in America where they have hundreds of first and second cousins. We, we typically don't have uh, such good matches. So uh, we do try and specialise for the UK, and, and but we have lots of Australians, New Zealanders and Americans in the group as well. So that group, group is called DNA Help for Genealogy UK. Um, so the, it's got UK in brackets. So DNA Help for Genealogy UK. And you can find me there. I answer, I, I come in and, and answer most of the uh, threads that are on there. And we keep a close eye on it. I have some fantastic admins helping in that group as well. You can find me on Twitter at Donna SR. That's S for Sally, R for Rutherford at Donna SR. I'm usually on the social media uh, as much as time permits. Well, thank you very much for your time and your expert knowledge on everything you've gained over the, the years of surfing around and doing your detective and sleuthing work. I love it. I love it a lot. And my thanks there to Donna Rutherford for her time and expertise on genealogical matters. And I can highly recommend checking out DonnaRutherford.com and reading her blog posts. And on the site, you'll find one of them called DNA, What, When, How, Why, FAQ for Beginners, 2023 edition, where you will find many of the links that we've discussed in this episode. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Armchair Genealogy, produced by Broadcast Media UK and The Genealogy Guy UK. And finally, this episode's tip is from Jared Kintz, who said, why bother taking a DNA test to discover your genealogy? Just go buy a lottery ticket, and if you win, all your distant relatives will find you. And on that note, happy and conclusive researching. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to be informed when new editions are published.